Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water, to support women as leaders in the conservation movement, to ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. everybody. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee, and our co-host this week is Ashley Chance. Hi, Ashley. Hey, Marsha. I feel like it's been a long time since we were on an episode together. I think it has because, I mean, well, gosh, yeah, like four episodes at least, maybe at more. At least, yeah. Yeah. How's it, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We, I actually, it's funny, I, I was trying to record a, a different podcast earlier today, and we got maybe an inch of snow last night, I doubt it, and there was a snowplow that was driving by the window like six or seven times, back and forth, I don't know, we got six inches of snow a couple weeks ago, and it just stayed until it melted, so somebody <laughs> important on our street must have complained. <laughs> that, well, I hope it's clear now, because that amount of effort is impressive. Yeah. It's beautiful That's now. Funny. Yeah. Yeah, we don't get, I live on a little side street and there's definitely, as there should be, right? Like there's prioritizing uh, about the yeah. streets that they hit first and how often, and I'm clearly at the very bottom of that list, um, <laughs> which is fine, <laughs> but it makes it tricky. That's funny. Well, that's good. At least, uh, at least we're, we're snowplow free for this podcast then. That's right. Our guest today is Dr. Lindsay Long. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to learn more about you and have a great conversation. I look forward to it. Uh, let's kick off with our first question. And I found, it's funny, I found like a cycle of, because obviously we talked to a lot of hunters and anglers, and I found a cycle with this first question that there are a lot of answers if you ask it October through March. And then after March, the answers start to get a little bit, well, it's emptying out, <laughs> which is kind of funny to get like the cycle of our seasons as reflected in our freezer, because that's the question, what's in your freezer? Oh, right now in my freezer, I have venison, so from white till deer, and some wild turkey. And I think that's what I'm down to actually now. Um, I do can. <laughs> A lot Ooh. of stuff as well, but that's mostly, I think I mostly have venison left on the shelf canning. Oh, and wild rice. I live in an area where I can harvest wild rice. So oh. that's one of the things oh. in my pantry that I like to talk about because not very many people get that opportunity. That's yeah. amazing. I've, yeah. Um, okay. The first question I want to ask, because this is something I've been thinking about is canning your meat. Tell, yeah. Tell, um. <laughs> I can't even get the question out. Tell us more about I've also that. been thinking about this. I'm just gonna join into the <laughs> to the conversation. I unfortunately though, I'm not gonna be able to do anything you tell us, Lindsay, because I didn't get to do it this year. But I do wanna hear. Well, so this is actually my very first deer that I harvested. So it Yay. was a huge deal for me. I'm That's, a congrats. I started That's hunting fantastic. as an adult and so I've been seriously hunting deer for um, three years, and this was my the first deer that I harvested nice. on my own. So I was really excited. Mm. Um, but yeah, so my my mom, I grew up in a canning family, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I we always canned. And so for meat, you because there's not a lot of acid involved, you actually have to use a pressure canner. Mm -hmm. So um, that's one thing. And 
Um, I just follow directions for beef for venison. Okay. So the amount of time, the temperature, the amount of pressure that's required, um, I follow the like beef instructions. And I think USDA even has something up on proper canning. So you have to add a little bit of water. I like sometimes we'll add like we make like um, my mom makes a um, it's got carrots and um, some mushrooms and like some port wine in it, mm. um, and with venison and that's really good but it's really neat because the I cut it up into chunks but it gets so soft when you pressure like when you pressure can that when you cook it later it doesn't matter what cut it was like I use a lot of the off like the small leg muscles and things like that for canning and it's perfect it's perfect it works out great so when you say pressure canning is that like with the is there a special tool for that or is that with just the water and the pot and the thing there there's a (laughs) Yeah, you get a pressure canner. So it's, it's, so like, it's like pressure cooking. It's a little bit, it's normally a little bigger container. I mean, it's, you could use it for pressure cooking too. It's just, it's normally bigger than what you would use for pressure cooking, but it's the same, it's the same idea. It's got like a, sometimes like mine has a weight and a gauge. Some will just have certain weights you use for, um, instead of having a gauge on it, but there are actual, they, they close just like a pressure cooker cooker. It's just, it's bigger, I guess in a way. Okay. And you can't have, you have to have like a, a bottom, like, so I have a steel pressure canner and it has a little, you have to have like a elevated, it's like a insert that goes in there so that the cans are trivet. Ah, trivet. Yes. (laughs) Wow. They're not completely, it's got (laughs) holes in it so that they're not completely on the solid um, bottom, but yeah, yeah, that's it. That's That's all it is. Can you give us a review of the meat? Like, because I've heard a lot of people say, well, yeah, you know, you pressure can, you can can chunks of meat, but what are you going to use it in? And I'm like, I would love to not have to thaw something. Like, (sighs) skip the forethought for dinner. Our favorite is nachos. (laughs) Mm. Like, we we have canned venison nachos. But, um, yeah, I, so anything that I would use chunks in, like, I make a lot of, um, Indian food, like yeah. using Indian spices. So it works great for that. Um, it, yeah, it works great for any kind, anything that you would just, that I would add chunked meat to. I guess yeah. I, I, I use, cook it a lot with wild rice for stews. It's great. Um, yeah, I, I use it for lots of stuff. That's cool. And yeah. I imagine, yeah, with curries and stuff like that, it would be perfect, especially if you said it has a, a little bit of a tenderizing component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's, Do you worry about botulism? <laughs> <laughs> Not with the way we, I, you know, we check, I check the seals on everything. And if yeah. it doesn't seal, then um, we would put it in the refrigerator and use it right away. Right. But I, I have not had a problem with it not sealing. But it, that is something you need to check is just make check and make sure the seal is good. Very cool. Lindsay, I was talking to my grandma about this a few years ago when I first thought it seemed like a good idea. And she said growing up, her mom used to can beef all the time, like you said, and she said it was so good. They would have it on Sunday after church. They would just spread it on toast. And she was like, but, you know, you got to really be careful when you're using the pressure canner because it can explode at any time. (laughs) 
<laughs> Apparently, they're, they're much safer now. Is that what you're? Yes, say? they are much safer now. There, there's like escape valves and stuff on a lot of pressure canners that they make today that they didn't have previously. <laughs> so the the explosion factors. Is, the explosion factors is minimal. Down, I think. Yeah, but it, it is true that people did explode pressure canners in the past. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I mean, my mom, my mom does chicken and stuff too. Um, I haven't, I haven't canned any of the wild birds I've harvested, but it's a thought. Yeah. I normally eat those too fast to even freeze them. So yeah, <laughs> you haven't quite the I haven't harvested enough <laughs> to actually even freeze them, let alone do anything else with them. So it's <laughs> interesting. I feel like my list of like I want a smoker, I want a dehydrator. Now I need a pressure canner. <laughs> the, the Christmas list just gets longer and longer. Yeah, and Love you can it. do well, the pressure canner. You can also do um, water Which, boil. You know, canning right. too, because you don't have to do. You don't have to pressure can with it. So that's a you can use it. It's a multi tool. That's good to know. Multi use justification, Marsha. <laughs> As if I needed any more. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, great. Well, thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, Lindsay. Well, I am a wildlife veterinarian. I work for um, a state agency for a state um, wildlife management agency. Um, see. That's like my job side on a personal side. I am kind of a newbie hunter. Upland game is like my favorite thing, especially with German short hair pointing dogs, because that's what I tend to have. Um, and I'm also, a, I enjoy almost everything outside, but um running and I've recently gone into um, climbing like both rock and ice because of where I live so oh, those are whoa. some of the fun things I know right I get to go I'm so excited I'm counting down the days ice climbing in just a few weeks so um but yeah I don't have I have to rent equipment for that because we don't go very often but it's just so fun it's so neat can you so, so I, I uh, lived in Colorado for a few years and my sister was a climber at the time and she invited me to come along and I can't remember and it was a hard pass <laughs> from me it was a hard pass um and so like can you talk to us a little bit about ice climbing and why you enjoy it um that was so a wrong sorry what about it no. you enjoy i feel like why you enjoy why is that fun <laughs> it's so funny because i went like i went rock climbing or like climbing on the wall way a long time ago in high or in college and um, so his friend suggested that we go to ice climbing up in Michigan, actually take a class through um, the ice fest. So up in the UP, they have Michigan ice fest. And so we went and we took the course and we had some instructors who were both local and some like people that go worldwide ice climbing. And it, it's a whole different perspective because you have to be aware of the ice you're on. Like it has, it has to have a certain firmness and it um you have to be careful about melts and flows that might be going through some of the ice and watch for water so you're you're not all, only you're you have to be aware of that and also aware of your surroundings but at the same time it's just like you're there there's structures that aren't lasting right so you're you get to climb these brand new things all of the time and every year they look different and dependent on the week, they could look different, dependent on the ice buildup and the sheets that they're made. And a lot of, t a lot of them are in areas where there's waterfalls and I, it's just, 
it's just this uh, all of these techniques that have to come together and I am I am one of those people that I need to be with other people who are more experienced to know which ice that we can actually climb versus mm -hmm. which is fragile and which is going to break and all of that stuff but like and and then just the idea of you have to be so um you really have to put everything else out of your mind and really focus and be comfortable in your feet and in having confidence in the spikes that you're using on your toes. And so it's just, it's just something, it takes me so far out of my comfort zone mm -hmm. that it makes, I really have to focus in on that. And it just, so it just, it takes my mind to a place that, um, I don't go very often and just, it really, in a weird way, this thing that kind of terrifies me also is super relaxing to me mm -hmm. and super invigorating and makes me totally 100% focus on the nature around me. It's interesting hearing you describe that. It reminds me of the podcast we did with um, the women who were on the um, uh, spearfishing team when they talk about their experience free diving under the water. And it's kind of the same thing. Like you, like your mind has to be 100% on what you're doing because your life depends on it and that you're just immersed in this, um, this universe that requires all of your attention. And it sounds very similar to that. And I imagine being in the, on the ice like that is, is sort of a similar feeling of an alien landscape or at least an, a landscape that um, is not predictable and familiar. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I always do top rope guided, so I'm not free climbing. Um, but still, even even with that, it's for me, exactly. It's it's immersing yourself 100 percent in the, your surroundings. Yeah. So it's really cool. I yeah. like it. Very Maybe give it a try. Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, 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 we'll add it to the very bottom of the list of things yeah. Marshall wants to do, possibly. It's a lot more legs and feet than, yeah. like, if you do it right, than your arms, which I was surprised by. But that's how I think climbing is in general. Like, you feel like you're, you should use more of your body. And, yeah, it's it's a lot of technique. And I am far from, yeah, I'm basic basic beginner but it's I really enjoy it and I try and go every year very cool um let's go back a little bit to hunting so you said you became a, a hunter as a as an adult and I want to dive in to um your life as a wildlife veterinarian and kind of hear what that is is like but I'm curious what um I guess uh how what made you interested in becoming a hunter there were it was kind of a multi-step process in a way, I think. Um, you know, I grew up, my dad was a large animal vet and I used to go on farm calls with him a lot. And eventually I um, decided that, you know, once I left our little area where I knew so many of the producers, I, I actually became a vegetarian and then a vegan for um, a number of years because I, I didn't feel the closeness to my food that I felt when I was there. Um, and then I guess once I really started focusing my studies on wildlife medicine and population medicine and understanding how management is so integral to 
wildlife health in areas where we interact so commonly with wildlife, I felt um, not only am, is it a way for me to connect to what I'm eating and have a understanding of where it's coming from as well as a um, really respecting where it's coming from, but also it supports our management goals and efforts for an overall healthy population dependent on what species we're talking about. And so um, that's kind of what guided me to it again. And then I worked in private practice for like a very short period of time in between um, some different uh, positions. And I ended up with a four-month-old German short hair pointer puppy. And it didn't work out at the time when he was younger that I was in a place where I was like I was pursuing hunting, I was doing a graduate degree and it wasn't something in my background. And then when I got to working with my colleagues and I started, they um, started introducing me to skeet shooting and taking me out pheasant hunting with their dogs. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never gave my dog this opportunity and he was bred for this. Mm -hmm. And I took him out on a Western, just like randomly, we went out West and he, he got to like, do some pheasant hunting in South Dakota when he was like 11 years old. And it was just like the coolest experience for me. And so it wasn't, I mean, he was, he totally did not point anything. I, let me just say it was <laughs> totally a flushing dog, but it was just having that initial experience with that. And I was hooked. And so now, yeah, so now I have, um, I have a bird dog who really came alive this year and it was so exciting to be able to hunt behind him this year. Cause everything was clicking. He got his first wild pheasant this year his first um, woodcock, he was pointing rough grouse, which I, the only reason he, we didn't get a rough grouse is my poor shooting attempts at rough grouse, but he really um, came alive with sharp tails first. And so, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of where um, it's a way to connect. It's a way for me to connect with my dog as well. And it's also a way for me to um, appreciate and fully integrate um, cons my consumption with the area around me that's that's lovely i i'm go ahead ashley were you going to say something don't hate on flushing dogs <laughs> I, I totally don't i don't it, it was really cool because um his first pheasant was with a flushing dog and they respected each it was so neat this year like this is the first time he hasn't wanted to play with other dogs when we've gone out with them <laughs> and we got to hunt with a flushing dog and she respected his point on some uh, Woodcock, actually, she was like, what the heck are you doing? Because we're pheasant honey. <laughs> so it was so neat, though. It That's was so funny. neat to watch them together. It was really cool. No, I'm I'm joking. I've never I've never been able to hunt with a pointing dog. And I've always thought it would be awesome. Actually, my husband's um, one of his good friends got a position working not far from us. So we went to his house for dinner the other night and he has this dog. I was like, babe, we need this dog. It's called a Llewellyn Setter. Mm. Oh my gosh. If if we didn't need a dog that could do upland birds and ducks because we're not going to have two hunting dogs, I would that's the dog for me. Like she was beautiful, she was sweet, she's of course a pointing dog. Um so yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm not against them. <laughs> <laughs> my friend just got one that she or last year and she's hoping to do both. So I'll t let you know how it goes. Oh, yes, please do. Is that Kelly? Um, that it's actually Kelly just got a, a poodle pointer, um, which is she's adorable. 
um, our friend Jenna, who also is like trapper extraordinaire. Yeah. She, yeah, she, she got a Llewellyn setter. Oh, so very cool. Yeah. Um, which I have not been able to go out with her for that. The reason I didn't say beaver is I have not been able to go out for beaver trapping yet with Jenna, but that's one of the things I want to have in my freezer. <laughs> right. Ooh, let's circle back when that happens. Cause I have questions. Will do. Okay. Uh, wildlife veterinarian, tell us about that. (laughs) (laughs) It it is, it's an interesting topic because, um, the first thing people always say to me is like, I didn't know states had those. Right. (laughs) Right. And so I, I will say it's, um, not every state does, uh, it's becoming more consistent. Almost every state has someone who, um, focuses in one way or another has wildlife health as a component of their job duties because like especially over the past I want to say like 20 years um conservation medicine has really become kind of along the same lines I don't know if people have heard of one health where you have like um animal uh, or veterinary human environmental health kind of all tied together um well with conservation medicine it's the same but the the environmental aspect is really important and integrating um species specialists and um forestry specialists and all these things into evaluating how not only the environment but populations within it are doing is really important and so as that's come up we've seen more veterinarians being hired into um state and federal agencies which is really cool um because they're, they're one component. Like I said, there's multiple people that are really important in it. And you don't have to be a veterinarian to be in, a, in the wildlife health realm. Um, for me, I knew I wanted to do wildlife health since, geez, I think since my dad started having me watch like the Mutual of Omaha shows when I was yes. about five years old. I didn't know that he was programming me until later on. <laughs> oh, I always wanted to do zoo medicine and you doing wildlife is great. <laughs> so it was, he was programming me as a child, but, um, isn't that but, what parenthood is? <laughs> That's what I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us, Ashley, you're going to have to keep us updated on how that works. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, um, it's, it's really, it's a key component in, you know, management efforts, but also like, so wildlife health is more than just like what disease are popping up. It's how, how do we maintain healthy populations now and into the future? And are there ways that we interact with wildlife, whether it be uh, that we can improve population health? Is there, are there things that we need to monitor, monitor for and try and protect populations from? Um, So you can work that <laughs> that may require um, working with individual, um, or sorry, that may require that we um, investigate disease outbreaks. You know, that's one part of the job we do. One part is um, we might work with some of specialists and researchers to try and figure out like how populations move. So handling wildlife through like anesthetics and things like that. There's a lot that we do that involves helping write regulations um, or reviewing regulations or reviewing animal handling procedures. Um, all of those things play a, a, an important role in how management and wildlife management is in, in, interplays. It's, 
interesting, Lindsay, because you are a veterinarian, but when I think of a vet, I think of somebody who treats individual animals and your job is like population level, right? Like you're thinking about groups and how you can influence their health. Yeah. And so there are, I will say there are certain, um, so each state is different in what your job responsibilities are. So with me, I do work a little bit with individual animals in terms of when we're doing, um, we might be collaring individual animals or um, like trying, doing some translocations, but it's always has to come, it kind of ties back to population medicine. There are um, certain states that have like actual research facilities where they maintain wildlife populations. And so when you have animals in captivity like that, you do focus more on like individual medicine. Um, They also will do have some research efforts that might help um, in the field as well. But again, I mean, even those individual medicine um, topics tend to tie back to population health. And so my background is more in epidemiology and disease transmission and um, evaluating disease risk and response. And that, that does tend to be what um, wildlife medicine or, you know, state responsibilities are in general is that, that population versus individual, versus a big focus on individual animals. I'm curious how much of your work centers around game animals specifically? I, so a high, um, portion of my job is on game animals for sure. Um, I do work. So it depends on the agency. So we're, my agency has divisions or bureaus that are broken up by, um, what people would probably think of as game and non-game species. And so I, my job actually works with both, but I will say a higher propensity proportion of my time is spent with game. My agency also has fish health veterinarians. And so there are some agencies that may not, and they may have one person doing that as well tied, tied in. There's also some agencies, especially on the coast that might have like freshwater versus saltwater positions as well. So it's, it's really the amount of individuals then like the way these jobs look is almost as varied as there are states. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, going back to what you mentioned, um, conservation medicine, and I think the, a lot of that uh, description was new information for me. And I think as conservationists, we talk a lot about the interconnectedness between habitat health and wildlife health and human health. Uh, and I think it's interesting to think about that from the animal's perspective, like you do, right? Like you're focused on wildlife health and, and how it connects to human health and habitat health. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about kind of the biggest factors that you're seeing impact wildlife health uh, in, in, as it relates to conservation medicine. If that question makes sense. <laughs> I don't even know if that it, question makes sense. No, it, it does. And I, I, I think... Um you know, there's a few things that we start to think about when we think about how all of these things interplay. So we can think about like snow cover. 
um, or season length or season structure impacting wildlife health. I think um, there was just a recent article on um, some research that's ongoing on like snowshoe hair and when, you know, they're their coats change by sunlight. So there is their coat changes triggered by sunlight from going from like the brown from summer to white that they have in winter. And when you have snow patterns change, so if it's not snowing at the same time, or if you're not getting snow on the ground at the same time, those patterns start changing that impacts like how they're, um, how they're, they're no longer like hidden, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're this big white object out on a gray or brown background. Mm -hmm. And so if we think of things like that, well, it's, it's not just those hair patterns that can impact, that can impact the species of tree and other vegetations that we have. So that can impact like some of the browsing or available um, food sources for wildlife. It can impact the parasites that are on the ground. It can impact some of the um, viruses how long they may stay in the environment. If they have certain um, species, like if they're, if say like with West Nile virus, I, um, that's a virus that is spread by mosquitoes. So if we have temperature fluctuations that allow for those mosquitoes to live longer and possibly pass that virus longer to say some of our bird species or others. And then um, if they don't have the food that they need to maintain healthy, robust immune systems. Those are all things that can impact health. So how the environment changes can, what um, nutritional plane levels and other stressors, all of those things can have an impact on how um, animals might respond to like disease or parasitic insults. So it's, there's a lot of things that are encompassed in there. So I may not have a very like strong understanding of if we're seeing changes to like some of the, say some of the berry producing plants that might be integral to some of our species, but the foresters and biologists do. And so that's where we like working together, we can start to try and identify where we may want to ask questions on, well, is this something that's impacting these populations at a greater level? Is there something we need to try to do to respond? Is there anything we can do to respond and um, work from there? Those are big questions. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nothing's easy. No. <laughs> but but I, I think it, it, it illustrates that, well, you know, sometimes we'll talk about, oh, this, you know, introducing, um, well, let me think about it. I'm trying to think of a good example. You know, a lot of times when we talk about how populations can respond to certain insults, it's by, well, as long as they have quality habitat or if they, you know, then they should be, you know, population-wise, we should be okay. It might be locally, but sometimes we have to think about, well, do we have that habitat anymore? What can we do to help them have those habitats to remove those stressors so that this one is something that the population can respond to and recover from. Right. Right. That's interesting. So it's not necessarily addressing the issue that is most threatening at the moment, but, but maybe addressing smaller issues to give them a little bit more resiliency. Right. Cause some of the, especially with diseases, um, like if, you know, people 
when you think about wildlife, like some of the things that are difficult in responding to diseases that pop up in wildlife is that we don't have our hands on a significant part of the population. So like if there was a vaccine for something, it could be very hard for us to deliver it. Mm -hmm. And how would we get it to the point where it would impact the population enough that it would be they would be able to have an, an a population level response. And then in some species, they're so short lived. How can we pr ensure that that immunity is spread for the next generation? Right. So um, so we have that kind of an impact if we're thinking about like specific insults of diseases. Some things we you know, most of them we don't have any vaccine for anyway. So it wouldn't matter. And we haven't tested them on wildlife. And that's another thing. But like with West Nile virus, that's one where you think of where there is like a vaccine that's used like in horses, but you know, would that be available for birds and would they respond appropriately? Things like that. Um, and then some, you know, some things have like two, two or three different vectors so that it's like a virus, but it's spread by mosquitoes. So if you try and control the mosquitoes, then you alter other, um, you could, you could cause problems with within other cycles within other bird species that might ingest those mosquitoes so it's it's a complicated woven web right and you pull one string and it could unravel a whole different web than you were looking at so yeah. that's why it's so integrated and so important that we work with all of these different specialists and um, experts this seems like a good point for us to take a quick break to hear from our partners we will be right back Howdy Artemis listeners, this is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. Sick of pink it and shrink it? Us too. That's why we trust Isle Royal Outfitters as our source for women-exclusive hunting and fishing apparel. Their products are meticulously field-tested, incorporating new solutions to ensure all apparel is silent, scent-free, and designed specifically for women, so nothing stands in the way of your hunt. With a woman-first approach and exclusive camo prints, you can ensure these products will not only stand up to your time in the field, but can also be utilized in everyday life. Check out IsleRoyalOutfitters.com and use code ARTEMIS20 for 20% off your next purchase. That's IsleRoyalOutfitters.com and code ARTEMIS20. Okay, welcome back. Lindsay, can you tell us a story of one of your favorite memories? I, I think as a wildlife conservation or as a wildlife veterinarian. Oh, one of my favorite stories. Um, I've, I've had a lot. I, so my absolute favorite species that I've ever um, gotten to work with is probably giraffe. So I um, had the. <laughs> had curious the about how that happened. <laughs> well, yeah. I had the good, I had the fortune of um, being a, 
being involved in and working with um, a number of uh, or groups in South Africa over a number of years for both a like a graduate project as well as um, some training opportunities for other students as like a mentor. And so uh, giraffe are probably, they, at the time they, they've developed better anesthetics, but at the time it, it, um, they are, were very reactive to the um, anesthetic we had to use. And so anytime you worked with giraffe, it was, you had to be super careful and you have to kind of partially wake them up and then you walk them. So you put a, we have a harness that we created for them and you blindfold them and then you have a break on a back leg with like nine people holding onto it, <laughs> but you, you actually walk them into like a trailer because you can't lift them because they're too heavy. Their legs are too long. Someone like their back leg has the ability to kick in the head of a lion, right? So you don't want someone kicked with that. So you have to have this kind of walking progression in order to you kind of guide them in the direction that you need them to walk in while they're half while they're sedated and so um yeah so I got to work with individuals who were um repopulating an area that um with giraffe and um move a few to that few um giraffe to that property and it was it was just it was really cool to see this it was a really it was a really amazing habitat and just like be able to release this group of like four giraffe into this new area where, and they had come from an area that was pretty over grazed and over browsed and just like release them from the truck and have them take up residence and like see, go back and see how they had progressed later on. That was probably, that's probably one of my favorite experiences. You know, it's cool. Wildlife translocation is, um, can be a touchy topic because you know you have to be so careful there's things we have to consider with disease movement and testing and all of these things and um so it was it was just it's a neat experience the release part for me though is that like seeing them walk away is by far no matter what I work with if if we have to touch them like and actually put our hands on them watching them walk away and seeing them like in their environment later on or even on camera is probably my that's what I like the best. That's cool. That's really cool. It also occurs to me that I would have referred to multiple giraffe as giraffes. And then I thought maybe people in South Africa would say deers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think you can say giraffes. I, I think it's okay. It just, it sounds more elegant when you say giraffe though. Um, <laughs> but Lindsay, one of the, I can definitely identify with, not the release to a new location, but um, I spent a number of years moving around the country, working on um, different like short-term research projects as a technician, just catching deer and releasing them exactly where we caught them once we had put a collar on them or some other tracking device. And <laughs> I don't know, there's just something magical about coming into close contact with something wild and then seeing it later on camera in the same place, like you said, um, even though mine were deers, it's cool. <laughs> deers. Right. And doing, doing what they're supposed to do. That's what's cool. And, um, I like, we try to limit, you know, we don't, we don't want to, how do I put this? We try to limit the times that we handle wildlife to things that are really necessary. And we think 
will be of benefit to the knowledge of how we interact with these populations. But you can't help but just feel in awe, I think, when you do get that opportunity. Absolutely. I think anytime you get close to something wild, right, and and have the opportunity to actually touch it um, is an incredible experience, and not many people get that. I think, I mean, I even think about that as a hunter, um, you know, approaching an animal that you've shot for the first time and probably being the first person to ever lay hands on that animal. And I can't imagine what it's like to do that with a live animal and then to see them run away and in certain ways take you with them. Did I just wax I, poetic? That was, <laughs> no, that was awesome. I can't, I can't even respond to that because that's yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's, they do, they do take a part, I think. I will say, Marsha, it's funny. I, um, what you were waxing about reminded me um, during my graduate work in Mississippi, we were catching adult bucks and putting GPS collars on them and we we're doing it on private land. So a lot of times I would extend an invitation to the landowner to once we had an animal down to come out and be there for the actual workup and collaring, just cause it's like a cool thing. Um, and any, almost, almost all of the people that came out, they're all hunters. They all owned these properties primarily for being able to manage and hunt for whitetails on them. So this was a really big deal to them. People that have harvested many of them in the hundreds of deer in their life, if not, um, you know, like multiple double digits. And when they would come out and get up to the sedated buck, like it's just laying there sleeping, basically. When they touched it, they touched it like it was a deer that they had harvested right? Like they would, you want to grab it by its antlers, lift its head up or just like kind of slap it. <laughs> I don't know. And I was always like, whoa, 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 like it's still alive. We don't want to, we don't want to stress it out or wake it up. You know, like they still have some sensory input at that point. And I just always thought it was so fascinating to me to see them. I don't know. They were in awe, but they still couldn't really make that leap from all the other deer that they had interacted with. And I feel like in the Artemis community, and I'm not saying it's like a, a woman man thing, but I feel like a lot of times when we talk about the animals that we harvest or the photos we take with our harvest, it's, it's less, I don't know. It's less, uh, it's more nuanced maybe. And your, your waxing poetic kind of made me think about that. Think about the nuance. Yeah. I was thinking specifically about pronghorn because you mentioned giraffe, um, which are, and the same, I don't know where along the line they intersect, but they have an intersecting line um, in their genetics. And like going up to an antelope the first time I harvested one and um, seeing an animal that close that I've that I that is kind of new to me because um, I wasn't I became familiar with antelope when I moved out here to the west. It's always like. I mean, there's a moment of awe, right, where you just, my hand rests on its neck and I just stare at it for a while. Um, that's usually how I react to a downed animal. And I imagine it would be the same with, with, a, live one, with a live animal. It's just this awe and appreciation of the closeness. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's... I've, I've found myself speechless working with a lot of wildlife species, like not knowing exactly what to say. And, um, 
they they fulfill these niches, right? So mm-hmm. it's they've just got so many um, characteristics that make them thrive in the environments where they live. And whether it be, you know, I'm extremely lucky. I've gotten to work like with wolves. I've gotten to work with um, predator like cheetahs and African lions and leopards and then like the ungulate species and I and each one but and you think well that one's cooler but not they're all so cool like white-tailed deer just so cool they all they all have these they they fit into these puzzles so well and they're so specialized and it just it's just amazing to me Mm -hmm. so I would agree I guess what I was trying to say is I agree with you, what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, but we no, all I think, agree. I think you're right though. Like um, a part of that appreciation is in in what makes them them so specifically. Because yeah, with pronghorn, I think what I appreciate most, uh, obviously, is is their eyes are huge. And that's a survival trait. And their fur or their hair, I don't even know if it's fur or hair, is hollow because they're, they need to be fast. And so that's a survival trait. And it's, yeah, it's, you're right. Like everything about them is specifically designed to fit into this system. And that's fascinating. That's just mind blowing. Well, and to fit into a system so perfectly when the system's healthy, right? And I think that's, Lindsay, what you do in your day job is to try and preserve and promote the health of these systems and the animals in them. Because as we all know, when something's off, when, you know, a piece of the puzzle is shifted too far, um, it can be hard to fit into it anymore. Exactly. I mean, you have one system that does one piece that does great and is to the point where their population is above carrying capacity. And then that can destroy food sources and habitat for numerous other species. So you, you need that balance. So, yeah, exactly. So I'm curious. Uh, I, uh, I have a couple more questions that I wanted to be sure to ask as we kind of wind the podcast down. But is there something that you want people to know about wildlife health and disease that we haven't talked about yet? I think the big takeaway that I, I'd kind of like people to get from the podcast is just that wildlife health is an integral integral part of wildlife management. And they're not like two separate entities. They're tied to each other. Um, and that we need to be able to understand and um, pro- like be able to monitor for and respond to um, the wildlife wildlife health concerns that we can in order to maintain healthy populations for that we can manage in the future. And I think like when we're talking about being in the field, um, you know, I think as hunters, we are all um, aware of issues like CWD that are impacting our game species. Is there another big issue like that that's not getting um the awareness that cwd is that people should be aware of i i think it depends on where you're located so i um 
so, you know, certain states might have um, diseases or parasites that they're monitoring for. So my takeaway is if you have the ability to um, like get on your agency, like your state agency's website and just kind of most of them will have a an area about maybe what they're interested in if they're collecting samples for certain diseases. Like if it's out east, you might see that, you know, there's some really um, interesting work that they're trying to focus on like um, black bear mange. Um, there's a specific mange mite that they're concerned about on the east. On the west, there might be things with hoof diseases and some of the cervid species. So I think just trying to be aware of what your of what requests might be out there because you know our, our biologists we really rely on citizens who are interested and have a vested interest in wildlife as being eyes and ears on the ground and letting us know if they see something that's abnormal to them or letting us know if there's like something they're they're seeing that they had never seen before um a lot of times that's the first that'll be the first sign that we know of something that we might need to investigate. So mm -hmm. just being aware that of who to contact or the biologists in your area and what your state might be trying to focus on if, if there's ways that they're asking people to um, assist in either collecting samples or providing samples or being in eyes and ears for them. That's perfect. Thank you. Uh, Ashley, any last minute burning questions? No, I think this was super fascinating. I honestly, when you said One Health earlier, I thought maybe it was like a health insurance plan. <laughs> and that's what it sounded like. But then when you went into the concept, I, I'm amazed and I hadn't heard of it before, at least not used with that term. So I'm excited to learn more about that. It, Yeah, it's really, so they, um, yeah, it's probably because of the, I, thank you for mentioning that because I, throw that term around because it's used so commonly in vet med, vet med and public health and all of those things. And it's, um, but conservation medicine for sure was what I read about even before um, people started using the term One Health. And while they're a little bit different because One Health is focused on, um, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't go as deep as conservation medicine does into like habitat and things like that, but I think it's still a part of it. It still brings it to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Lindsay, is there anything else you want to mention before we transition to our closing question? I don't think so. I've had such a good time. I hope yeah. um, I hope I shared some good information. I've learned a lot. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you. It's been a it's been a great conversation. And our closing question: It's hits and misses. The question is: What have you been aiming for, and how did it go, Ashley? Oh, I did not prepare today. Um, <laughs> Okay, aiming for. So my husband got invited to go on a duck hunt out of state. And as much as it killed me to not go with him, I was not invited. Um, and now that we both have hunting friends, it's okay. It used to really not be okay. <laughs> but no, nice. it was good. Yeah, it was good. He went, it was his birthday trip. Um, and he brought back ducks and we rendered the fat. We waxed oh. and plucked them. Yes, we finally have duck fat back in the kitchen, which is just, oh, it's a huge hit. I mean, yeah. that's, aside from butter, it's and best. maybe if I had more, yeah, maybe if I had more duck fat, it would be number one. But yeah, it's, oh. it's just the best. 
No, I was going to say duck fat is the best is what I was saying in my head, even if it came out that I said butter is the best. <laughs> butter is fabulous. But, butter is so, the most used, but yes. yes, duck fat is the best. So I'm curious, like, uh, having never rendered duck fat myself, like, what's the quantity takeaway? Like, how many ducks oh. and what did you end up with? So it's funny that you say that because we stood back and looked at the final product this year and we were like, we did much better than our first, our first go round last year. Nice. Um, I think we got a lot more fat out of the ducks. Cool. So it depends on the ducks, right? Different species. You some you want to, yeah. So there's some you want to keep the fat from, some you don't. I think we had, um, he brought back a, a mallard, um, a couple pintails and a gadwall and we rendered it was more, I think it ended up being like eight ducks and we rendered the fat from of those species. He had some shovelers too. And we didn't, we kept the fat on the breasts and legs, but we didn't render the fat from them. Hmm. Um, so anyway, for all of those birds, maybe like eight. Oh, and we had teal. I think there were three green wing teal, um, which are small birds for the people out there that aren't waterfowlers. Um, all of that got us like a, a little more than a cup of duck fat. So it sounds like a crazy amount of work for not a lot of reward, but it's just, it's liquid gold. I don't know what to say. Like, we're never going to, we will never breast out a bird again because it's that good. I I am just, I need to learn more about rendering because I, yeah, it's something I want to look into more too. Like with the canning, like just like canning, this is something that I have not done or tried. Lindsay, yeah, you do need to learn more, especially if you're harvesting um, upland birds, because according to Hank Shaw, who is my food guru, um, he I think he waxes and plucks all of those birds, too. I don't know if he renders the fat from them, but he definitely leaves some skin on. Wow. So, yeah, we OK, <laughs> this is going a little long. Um, but when I was like my first year in undergrad in college, we had, I went in Wisconsin, we had what's called the J term. It's like a month winter break. So I went home and I wanted to do, I knew by that point already that I was going to transfer, or maybe I didn't know. I don't know. Anyway, I got an internship, quote unquote internship. I convinced this game farm to let me work there for four weeks while I was home. And, um, part of my job was like setting birds for hunts. And then this was a very fancy place. So the people that shot their birds did not clean their birds. That was my job. (laughs) And, um, I would, for when we would do a duck shoot, we would de-feather them. And there was a machine that I think must've been homemade. It was basically like a, like a rotating axle that had to what to me looked like rubber strips, like what you would cut from a tire. I mean, not really, cause it would have the metal webbing in it, but basically rubber strips that it would rotate and it would just like slap the feathers off of the bird as you fed it into the machine. Huh. And it worked so well. And D feathers are extremely expensive and my understanding also of like the ones that you can buy for if you do like chickens or turkeys or something is that you need different ones for different species because the size of the bird right. really impacts how they are in the drum. So my husband and I are trying to figure out different ways to pluck birds. And eventually one day when I have time in my life again, <laughs> I'm going to try to recreate um, a machine like that. I'm sure there's somebody on YouTube that's done it, um, but that would be like if you are somebody who gets a lot of a small amount of birds frequently, like we do when we're hunting, um, that I think would be the ticket. 
That's fascinating. I have this image of what it looks like in my head, and I'm <laughs> curious if it's accurate. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, Lindsay, what have you been aiming for, and how did it go? Um, I We just finished out our rough grouse season, um, and it was – did not get one this year. So the elusive rough grouse are me. <laughs> However, I, I am – Man, this it so it was a miss, but it was a hit because my dog did so well. So I'm not I am totally happy and I harvested my first turkey and my first deer this year, so I cannot go. <laughs> it That's was huge. yeah. So um so we're rough grouse next year again is gonna be like the high up on our list of things that we're gonna try for, but very cool. You did you so we did a podcast with um a woman from the Rough Grouse Society, and she talked about this annual tradition they have called Grousemas. Just going to throw that out there for you. I think oh. you need a Grousemas. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to I probably haven't listened to that podcast yet. I'll have to make sure I got it. It's worth it. Just, I mean, it's worth it for a lot of reasons, but the Grousemas alone <laughs> was, is, was a good takeaway for me. We, uh, as a hit, we were able to have our annual doe camp this year and um everyone was healthy and we were able and we added another farm um so we saw deer this year we saw does we didn't have any that we could take shots at but that that was a improvement from the last year so <laughs> when we couldn't have it yes oh so it's really cool to have a bunch of women that you can go hunt with and yeah it's that's always isn't a hit. it it's always a hit i agree and and it's interesting too because it sounds like for all of us it's a bit of a the same experience where we've been hunting for hunting in a community of women for a few years now and so we have those established friendships and those established camps that have become somewhat of a tradition and yeah I know for me they're definitely things that I look forward to. What about you, hit or miss? Yeah. Oh gosh, I have a miss uh, that ended up fine. So I guess it's it's kind of a hit too. But I was. Um, hiking with my dog. So I mentioned on a couple of podcasts back that I got a new rescue dog and we're, we're sort of, we're getting to know each other and feeling things out. And I took her on this trail where she can run and get some of her energy out and she got trapped in a snare. <gasps> oh my um, gosh. Yeah. It was super scary. It was around her neck. Um, and she's fine, but it was to the point where I, I like, didn't realize she was gone at first. And so like, I'm strolling along for probably another quarter mile before I'm like, she's not here. And so I had to go back and find her and she wasn't making much noise. So it took me a good while to find her, but she was only about 30 yards off the trail. Mm -hmm. Um, or it was an, it was a, it was a road that's closed for the winter. Um, but she was only about 30 yards off the road. Uh, so I was able to to get to her pretty quickly once I located her. But then I didn't have any snippers on me. So I actually had to leave her um, and go, you know, find a tool that could help me free her and then come oh back and, and cut her loose. Um, how? And, yeah. How was it anchored? Um, it was anchored to uh, a wire that was twisted and I couldn't see, I mean, it was a pretty long wire and I couldn't see where it was, where the other end was because it was under the snow. So it may have been like mm -hmm. anchored around a tree or something. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I tried when I found her the first time is to see if I could 
um, untwist that wire uh, to to at least get her loose. Even if I couldn't get it out from around her neck, I could get her out of the woods. Um, but I did not have the thumb strength to do that. <laughs> so we, oh. yeah, we have a lot of anchors that we use that you need a special tool to like they go into the ground and then they flatten out so that you can't just pull earth them anchors. necessarily yeah. earth anchors. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad so, that worked out well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would call that a hit in the end. <laughs> in the end, it was a hit um, because she is fine, and I had her checked out in the vet, and she's on some anti-inflammatories, and um, uh, and she's and that's it. Like, right? She's sore and swollen, but not injured, and so I'm grateful for that, especially since I had to leave her. Um, which part of me is like, yeah, yeah, you had separation anxiety before. <laughs> Let's see what happens now. <laughs> I yeah. I carry wire cutters with me now. Well, yeah, my you know with my dogs, we f- come across a lot of barbed wire on state properties that are is just remnant. Yep. Um, for hunting, but even hiking now for that. Re- yeah, for, that's one of the reasons. But yeah, yeah, and I think I mean I really do think if you have it does. I mean if you're a hunter, especially because I think that hunting dogs go in areas um, that are far away from trails where mm-hmm. where trapping is more common. Um, but I think, I think a couple of things, I think dog owners should all be aware of trapping regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they should all carry, um, some sort of, yeah, some snippers, uh, and, and educate themselves on how to release traps because A, not everybody's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, um, sometimes the, the rules still make them pretty accessible to dogs when you're on commonly yeah. traveled spaces. So just be prepared. I think that's a good. Hear, I don't know if you could hear it, but my dog is playing with a squeaky toy in the background. <laughs> She's like, "I'm still going." <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's my story. Um, everybody takes snippers with you because it, then she would have been free uh, much more quickly, and I think we would have all not been as stressed out. Lindsay, thank you so much. This was a great conversation, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed my time as well. Uh, to our listeners, I want to remind everybody this is that you have a few more days to submit your application to be an Artemis ambassador. Applications are due on February 7th. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about that, please visit um, artemis.nwf.org for more information. Uh, and if you want to join our community, um, we would love for you to do that. So please fill out the application um, and we look in forward to inviting a whole new cohort into our community for 2022. Thank you for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. Until next time, be bold, stay curious and get outside.